Well, if you all have been with us for a few weeks, you know that last week we just wrapped up three weeks of Jesus talking about His return, the, the last days. And this morning, we're going to shift gears a little bit. If, if talking about the last days, we're highlighting Jesus' role as the prophet who predicts the future and king who will come back victoriously, as we jump into Mark 14, the highlight's going to shift to Jesus as our priest. Our priest. Not, not only the one who offers the sacrifice we need for forgiveness of sins, but the one who is the sacrifice we need for sins. If you've ever read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you ever notice anything interesting about the proportions of the books that are spent on the last week of Jesus' life? Have you ever looked at that? In the Gospel of Mark, where we find ourselves, over one-third of the book is focused on the last week of Jesus' life. And it's similar to that in all the Gospels. Why? He was here 33 years or so. Why so much on the last week? Some of you know why. Because the cross and the resurrection is the core of the good news of Jesus Christ. You remove the cross and the resurrection, you do not have Christianity. You have something else. It's literally the, the lifeblood of the church. That's why so much time is spent here. So I invite you to jump with me into Mark chapter 14. We're going to do three things this morning. We're going to start with a look up at our omnipotent, all-powerful God. And then we're going to take a look in at our own hearts through two different accounts of, of Mary and Judas Iscariot. And then we're going to take a look down at Satan's role in some of the events of the Passion Week and what we can learn from that. But let's start with the look up to our all-powerful sovereign God. Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, those of you who know your Bibles know this was a, a time of great excitement in Jerusalem. Every Jew within 15 miles of the city would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which looked back at a central event in Israel's history. You remember they were enslaved in Egypt and in preparation for their deliverance, God said he would send an angel of death throughout Egypt and destroy the firstborn in every home. But he told his people Israel, if you, if you do this, if you choose a lamb, if you kill that lamb, if you take the blood of that lamb and spread it on your doorpost, when that angel of death comes through, your firstborn will be spared. Can you imagine that night if you're in that situation, looking out the window, seeing what's going on after you put that blood on your doorpost? Can you imagine the relief when you wake up and everybody's still there? Can you imagine the, the gratitude? And especially as God went on to take them out of slavery and deliver them to, to freedom. This was a time of celebration for the Jews 
One author said the population of Jerusalem would double from 25,000 to 50,000. Think of rodeo time in Prescott, right? We, we know what that's like. Another author shot much higher, Josephus, a Jewish historian, when he looked at the number of lambs slaughtered at one Passover, which were to be eaten by no less than 10 people, he said there were about 250,000 lambs slaughtered at one Passover. So he had the total in Jerusalem in the millions. Whatever the case, there's this great excitement. So during this time, it says, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth. They wanted to do it sneakily. Is that a word? <laughs> hey, they, had, they have words in the dictionary all the time. We're going to try to add that one today. By stealth and <laughs> kill him. Why by stealth? It says, for they said, not during the feast. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Many of these people love Jesus. And being under Roman occupation, the last thing the leaders wanted was to stir up a riot that would get them in trouble. So their plan was not during the feast. I believe, along with several other scholars that I was reading this week, they challenged me that this was a source of comfort to Mark's readers, most of whom lived in Rome under Roman persecution. You say, how would this be a source of comfort? Because the leaders' plans were to do it not during the feast. But looking back, Mark's readers as well as ourselves, we know something. When did it happen? During the feast. Right? During the Passover feast, despite the plans of the rulers. Why? Because of what Revelation 19.6 says, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Whatever plans men have, whatever plans Satan have, God's plan rules. One of these old preachers I was reading was saying, if we, if we took just that one verse out of the Bible, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, and really believe that, what would that do to our worry level? What would that do to our peace level if we really believe that God is in control? And as Ephesians 1.11 says, he works all things according to the purpose of his will. Even whatever darkness we find ourselves in today, would that not bring great comfort? Why was it God's will for it to happen during this Passover feast? Well, you follow the stream through Scripture. The prophets spoke of Jesus as a lamb. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. More close to the time of Jesus, what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. First Peter. Peter would later write in chapter 1 verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul the apostle was much more blunt. 1 Corinthians 5:7, you know what he calls Christ? He says Christ our Passover lamb. 
has been sacrificed. God's omnipotence, his sovereignty ought to bring comfort to us whatever situations we find ourselves in. If it was true around the darkness of the cross, surely it's true in your life today, believer. He's in control. He is in control. That's a look up. I want to start there. But I'll move on to a look in. As we look at the hearts of two people and how they reacted to Jesus, I want us to invite the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts. You remember shortly after Jesus was born and his parents took him to the temple, they met a, an elderly guy. You remember his name? Simeon? And one of the things that Simeon told Joseph and Mary is by this baby's life, by his life, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And that's exactly what happens. Anytime someone encounters the truth of who Jesus is, our hearts are revealed by how we respond to Jesus. We're going to see two hearts revealed. The, the first one, through an extravagant act of worship. I want you to look with me at verse 3. Because while he was at Bethany, and those of you who know your Bibles know that this was a, a popular rest spot for Jesus. He had three friends there. You remember who? Mary, her sister Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Something kind of important happened in his life. You remember? <laughs> yeah, he raised them from the dead. Jesus and his guys would go there for rest and refreshment often throughout his ministry. This time, they're in a different house, though. It says, in the house of Simon the leper. This could have been a Simon that, that Jesus healed from leprosy and the name stuck. We don't know. But it says, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Anybody know who that lady was from the Gospel of John? It was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. John 12 tells us that. She came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, this was a type of perfume. Now, if you're like me, I think about the fact that, you know, most of our perfumes and colognes have these, these exquisite names that make people want to go buy them, like obsession, you know, desire, all these things to get people to go, go buy them. I, I read the word nard, and I'm like, I'm not tempted to go down... I don't think anybody's... So what in the world is nard? Well, we need to the, put ourselves in their shoes. They knew what it was. It was very rare, very fragrant. It was taken from the roots of a plant in India. And because of all that, it was very costly, as Mark tells us. Now, you all know unless maybe you're just starting out with the cologne and the perfume and looking for the other opposite sex to notice you, a little bit goes a long way, right? You just, just a little bit. That's, you, that's the usual way with cologne and, and perfume, okay? Is that what happened here? She broke the flask and poured it over his head. It's important that we separate those. It doesn't say she broke it on his head. That, that would destroy the, the moment here. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
John tells us she also poured it on his feet. And she used a pound of the stuff. You can imagine being in that room. If someone dumped a pound of perfume or cologne in this room, how the smell would just fill the air. How would Jesus' disciples and the others in the room react to this? Verse 4 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Why was it wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. You know how much 300 denarii was? About a year's wages. That is how costly this gift was that Mary poured on Jesus. They called it a waste. And of course, they sounded very religious while they did it, did they not? This could have been sold and given to the poor. It says they scolded her. Some of the words in Greek are very picturesque. One of the words has the idea of snorting. You can imagine as they watch, like, they murmured at her. They, they grumbled at her. They scolded her. Likely thinking Jesus is going to back them up. Yeah, I really appreciate the thought here, but these guys are right. Maybe that's what they're expecting. How would Jesus react to their snorting and their grumbling and their murmuring? Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, I imagine there's a couple things going on in Mary's heart. It doesn't come out and tell us, but we know little of Mary's story. I, I'm guessing at least two things are true of her heart as she responds to Jesus with this extravagant gift. Number one, she is filled with gratitude for what he has done in her life. She's just filled with thankfulness. Tell us Lazarus was at this feast can you imagine the, the conversation at the table? You know, anybody that's there, like, Lazarus, what was that like? Like, were, were you, like, in paradise, like, talking with Abraham and stuff? And then you hear this voice, <laughs> Lazarus, come forth, and, and all of a sudden you're back in your grave clothes and you're walking out, and there's Mary and Martha. What, what, a, what a conversation that must have been, may have been at that, that dinner party, whatever the case I believe Mary was immensely grateful when somebody brings your brother back from the dead. She's very grateful for what God had done in her life. Does that describe your heart this morning? Filled with, with gratitude, thankfulness for what he's done for you, believer especially. You say, what has he done for me? My goodness, we could be here all day, like the old song says, count your blessings, name them one by one, but that would take a while. Let's just start with the foundation. You think of how the Bible describes you before you came to faith in Jesus. Dead in your sins. 
condemned to an eternity apart from God in hell. Without hope and without God in the world. But Jesus came and spilled his precious blood. And I, and I see just as she had to break that container for that fragrance to fill the room, in order for the offer of forgiveness in Jesus' blood, he had to be pierced that we might find forgiveness of sins and, and newness of life. I think about the hopeless state we were in, and I think of something that happened a couple weeks ago at our house. I went for a hike in the field behind our neighborhood with the boys, and there were some puddles out there. And You, you know what those puddles were filled with? <laughs> yeah, probably mosquitoes too. I hear you. Amen. Tadpoles. They were full of tadpoles. And we saw them out there, and Evan said, I want to go back and get some and bring them home. So the next day, we went back to the puddle. Evan got his boots on. He stepped into the mud, the muck in the mire, used a scoop, and we brought home about 10 of those tadpoles. Now, I think about tadpoles in Arizona and puddles. What I think about is once the rain goes away and the sun comes out, what, what, what is that? That's a death sentence, right? You're... You're basically bird food. Until Evan came along and scooped them out of that muck and mire and brought them home. We put them in some fish bowls. They get clean water every day or two. We feed them. Jaden, Luke help us with that too. If you're wondering what you feed them, cucumbers and ham. Yeah, they're... We feed them. We gave them shelter. We, we provide for them. And now we're watching them transform into little frogs, what they were meant to be. And you know, one day we're going to take them out and let them go in the big world in the form that they were intended to be in. They were hopeless, I believe, until Evan came along and scooped them out of that mud. That was us, until Jesus came along. But for Jesus and his grace, she was thankful for what he had done in her life. The other thing I think that was going on in her heart she was focused on how much he deserved. She was focused on how much he deserved, and she knew that no price, nothing was too great in her worship of Jesus Christ, the one who had told her and her sister on the resurrection and the life. No, no price was too great. She was focused on what he deserved. But Jesus goes on after he says it's a beautiful thing. Verse 7 says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, was Jesus saying here, ignore the needs of the poor? No. No, if you have question about that, read your Bible. Old Testament, New. There's threads throughout there that we ought to care for the least of these. But I want to throw something out here. It is possible to get involved in all kinds of social justice, even as a Christian, and not have Jesus as our first love. It's, it's possible to get out there and do all kinds of good things, but forget our love and devotion for him ought to be our first love. Think of what John said in Revelation 2 verse 3. 
the church at Ephesus, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Thumbs up. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And here's the deal that I see. If you love Jesus, if you worship him, you will love the poor as well. Because he says, if you love me, obey my commands. And he he talks about that. But it's not guaranteed the other way around. Because I sometimes see folks that, that bear the name Christian that do lots of wonderful things in the world. But for many of them, some of what I see is a proclaimed hatred for the church, which is the body of Christ. Okay, and I I think this is an extension of what we're seeing here. Okay, but to love Christ first, and if we love Christ, we have to obey his commands. One of his commands is if you love one another, they'll know you're my disciples. Church is called the body of Christ. Church is called the the bride of Christ. And I'll tell you something. You come to my house and disrespect my wife, what kind of reaction do you think you're going to get from me? Am I going to be pleased with that? No. So as we're out there loving those in need, let us remember love for Jesus must come first, and if we love him, we'll also love his bride. We'll also love his bride. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say here. He says, you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Did she know it was coming? People debate about that. Maybe, maybe not. She was a good listener. You remember at the house with Martha that one time where that upset Martha? Maybe she had a a better sense of what was coming than his own disciples who didn't always listen that great. We don't know, but whatever the case, this was a beautiful act for him as he approached the cross. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a rebuke to those men who had snorted at her, murmured at her, and Is this not a fulfillment of that very thing this morning? Right here in 2021 in Prescott Valley, Arizona, we are hearing the story of this extravagant act of worship. You also see something else in Jesus' response here. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told. What's the gospel? It's the good news of the cross and the resurrection, whereby forgiveness of sins and salvation is available. He's on that side of the cross, looking to the other side at the outcome of all that's going to be, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. But we're going to move on to a tragic act of betrayal. That was one heart. Now we're going to look at another. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
All four of the gospel authors have that phrase. He was one of the 12. That tells us something. He's walked with Jesus for around three years. He's heard Jesus teaching. He's seen Jesus' mercy and forgiveness and power on display right in front of him time and time and time again. He was one of the 12. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Matthew tells us he asked the priests, how much money will you give me if I betray him to you? We also know from Matthew is how much? 30 silver coins. Now, many of you know that amount was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. If not, check that out this week. I learned something else about that 30 silver coins. In Exodus 21:32, it's the price to be paid for a slave if it was gored by a bull. The price of a slave, which is insightful when you think of what Mark tells us in 1045. What did Jesus say? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. How much was 30 silver coins worth? The the scholars are torn on this. One scholar, William Hendrickson, said it, it was about 20 bucks. Others range up into the thousands. I don't know, but it brings up the question to every heart today. At what price am I willing to turn my back on Jesus? What situation am I willing to turn my back on Jesus? Why? Why did he do this? One of the kind of hard things about the Gospels is they don't come right out with a sentence and say, this is why Judas did this. But we can... Look and, and see several things that it, that it may have been. And each of them, as we ponder them, are worth our own considering. Greed could have had something to do with it. This one is likely in my mind. Uh, because in John's account of the anointing that we just read about, Judas was the loudmouth who started that complaining against Mary. John 12, 4, says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then John says in verse 6, a glimpse into his heart, not, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Greed likely had something to do with what's going on. Perhaps disappointment. Disappointment. Jesus had promised these guys thrones in his kingdom, right? But as we learned, that kingdom, that millennium that we talked about is going to be delayed. Right now he's heading for a cross, and maybe Judas is, how does that fit into these plans? You promised us thrones. So that could lead to disappointment, disillusionment with where Jesus is heading. That's a warning to you and I. Sometimes 
We go through situations where we find ourselves feeling disappointed or disillusioned with God, with Jesus. We're praying something and He's not answering it in the time we wish He would or the way we wish He would. Beware at those moments of disappointment and disillusionment. Think at those moments we're particularly susceptible to the tempter leading us to be unfaithful to our Lord. I think instead of like Mary who was so grateful for all that Jesus had done, Judas may have been focused on what he had not done for him that he wished he would. Beware that as well. It's easier to focus there sometimes. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done this. Beware. And instead of Mary's response of how much does Jesus deserve, what I suspect in Judas' heart was an attitude of what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if I don't get exactly what I want from you, I'm bailing. Beware the heart of Judas. Maybe it was the rebuke in this room. Since we learned from John that Judas was the one that led that, maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because how many of us like getting rebuked? Especially in a room full of people. Maybe that just that dagger to his pride, he's like, that's it. That's it. That's it. I'm going to the priest's. We also know there was a spiritual element to what Judas did. There was satanic involvement. If you read Luke 22.3, it says, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. As I thought about that, My mind went to James 4, a passage someone brought up on a voicemail just yesterday. James 4, verse 7. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. As I thought about Judas here, I believe the opposite is true as well. But let's flip it around. Resist God. Submit to the devil. And he will run to you. Beware of opening doors in your life for the enemy to have his way. No wonder James gets so serious in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's all that mean? Repent of the sin you are allowing to have its way in your life. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Was Judas to be held accountable for his actions? Mark 14, 21, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
He is held accountable because while Satan was involved, he opened the door. Now, ironically, this tragic moment takes us back where we started. We said they didn't want to do it during the feast. Ironically, it was Satan's act through Judas that gave them the opportunity to do it during the feast, just as God had planned. It has got to be frustrating to be Satan. He's playing checkers. God is playing chess. (laughs) Okay, and listen to this. This is from a friend of ours. We recommended them a book, and they dove into it. A book called The Serpent of Paradise by Erwin Lutzer. All about Satan. And this paragraph from Erwin Lutzer says, we need to be reminded of Luther's words, that even the devil is God's devil. We have forgotten that only when we know who God is can we know who the devil is. Blessed are those who are convinced that the prince of this world has become the slave of the prince of peace. Even as the devil works, our omnipotent father works all things according to the purpose of his will. What a contrast. I believe that's why Mark included it here. This anointing that we read about, John tells us it didn't even happen on this day. John tells us it happened six days before, which was Friday or Saturday before the triumphal entry. Read John's account. It's chronological. Leads me to wonder, as Jesus rode in on that donkey, did he still have this wonderful smell from this ointment on him? I don't know. Why would Mark include it here? Is it because he's a chronological idiot? No, I believe along with many others, he wasn't going for chronology. He was going for theology. He put it right in this same account of the the betrayal to show us this contrast that we've seen this morning between an extravagant act of worship and a tragic act of betrayal. And as we look at them both, it invites us to have him search our own hearts. I want to bring it back around. Picture Mary in that room when all these guys are snorting and grumbling and murmuring and she's totally on the spot, totally vulnerable in the midst of all this. Imagine all the emotions going on inside of her. But then how, how good it felt when, when Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. How good did that feel to have the Lord back her up? And this wasn't the first time. We can learn some things from this Mary. You remember Luke chapter 10? Mary and Martha are at home. And Martha is getting upset because she's doing all the work. And Mary's sitting at his feet. Martha goes to the Lord in Luke 10, 40. And says, Lord, don't you care? My sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha. Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In both cases, the Lord commended Mary 
I want to ask you a question. In that room with all those guys and the perfume, after the Lord commended her for her action, do you think Mary gave a flying rip what the rest of those guys thought? I don't. I don't. And it challenges me to say, which do I think more about in my life? Do I care more about the Lord's commendation of my worship and obedience to Him, or do I care more about man's opinions? If we would learn well from Mary, say, I want His commendation. And unless man's opinions line up with His, I don't give a flying rip what they say. I'm going to worship my Lord and obey Him exactly as he leads me to, no matter what they say. As I close, I want to share about a group of people. We've talked about John Wesley sometimes. He preached the gospel to people that may not have been welcomed into some of the established churches at the time. Many of them had rough backgrounds, adultery, drunkenness, profanity. You go on and on. So you know where he preached? He preached in the fields. And many people heard the good news of Jesus and found him as their Savior and Lord. And as they sang the hymns, they would sing and shout so loud that some of the folks in the established churches came up with a, with a name that they likely said with a sneer over those people. You know what they called them? The enthusiasts. <laughs> the enthusiasts. <laughs> I thought about that and I said, man, you know what? When it comes to worshiping my Lord, I would much rather be called an excited enthusiast than a bored, dead ritualist any day of the week. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Lord, forgive us if you ever become boring to us. Lord, forgive our lack of enthusiasm for all that you've done. May we learn from Mary. Mary, Mary's heart of gratitude for all that you've done. It's so easy to slide into complaining. Lord, forgive us. Give us grateful hearts this morning for all that you have done. Help us to, to just focus on you and all that you're worth. You are infinite in your holiness and your love and your grace. There's no price too high in our lives behavior, our obedience. And Father, protect us from the trap that, that Judas walked into. I'm reminded of the words of one teacher who said when, when he was worried about her wasting money, that same Greek word for waste is used in John 17, 12 when Jesus calls him the son of destruction or son of perdition. It's literally the son of waste. He was worried about wasted money and he was wasting his life. It's truly tragic. Lord, protect us. Help us to submit to you this morning. Help us to resist the devil and see him flee. If our hearts need broken in repentance, please do that. Or do as you wish. Help us by your spirit to, to be those who who care infinitely more about what you say than what anyone else says. Free us from that trap of man-pleasing. Help us to be sold out to you. Help us to be enthusiasts for Jesus. Lord, I pray that even as we 
take our offering this morning, that it would come from those hearts of worship. The word says you love a, a cheerful giver. May we give to you in that fashion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.